Hello everybody and welcome to episode 8 of Lady in Black. 8 already. 8 already. We're so close to 10. Yeah, we are. We're getting there. So really quick before we get into today's episode, I would like to quickly welcome some of our new listeners because we have officially gone international. Really? Yes. So to our listeners in Germany, Austria, Canada, and the UK, welcome. I have no fucking clue how you found us, but I'm not going to question it. And I am so grateful that you guys are here. So for today's episode, it is one that I know has been covered by numerous other podcasters. However, it's one that I have always found super interesting. So for purely selfish reasons, I want to talk about it today. Um, So today we are headed down to Florida and we're going to chat about the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Have you ever heard of St. Augustine? I've heard of it, but again, never done a ton of research on it. Okay. So the history of St. Augustine is kind of fucking messy because there is a lot that has happened because it was established around 1565. 1565. Mm-hmm. And I know for people that are not from the U.S., that does not seem like a very long time. However, if you're from the U.S., that is a very fucking long time. Yeah, that... That's a ways back there. That's a ways back. Um, So St. Augustine, Florida is the oldest permanent European settlement on the North American continent. Um, It is sometimes referred to as the Old City, and it was established after Spain sent a man named Don Pedro Menendez de Alives to the coast, and he arrived on August 28th, uh, 28th of 1565, which... August 28th is now known as the Feast Day of St. Augustine. That's pretty cool. So while the Spanish um, had a hold in Florida, they built a wooden watchtower at the end of Anastasia Island, and it was built to keep enemy ships from coming in and taking the island. By 1737, the Spanish replaced the old wooden watchtower with a new 30-foot watchtower, which was made of shell rock and wood. So after the Seven Years' War ended, Florida was taken by the British, and it was divided into East Florida and West Florida. And this made them the 14th and 15th British colonies in the U.S. Okay. And St. Augustine specifically became East Florida's capital, and at the time it held 500 homes. However, once the British got a hold of it, the Spanish Spanish residents fled to Cuba and pulled the ultimate petty move ever because they took everything, including the nails in the wood. They just popped out the nails and were like, this is coming with me. Yep. Absolutely. They fucking (laughs) did. So when the British showed up, The town was empty. I love that. I'm obsessed. That's such a flex. That just makes my little Scorpio revenge heart so happy. I'm like, hell yeah, you take those nails. Yeah. You can have the town, but we're taking the nails. We're taking everything. We're taking everything else. Um, so in order to like fill it up, um, like this town and Florida as a whole, the British began offering land grants to people who would move in within the next 10 years. 
Um, during the British's hold on the lighthouse, they added an additional, or the watchtower, sorry, it's just a watchtower at this point, they added an additional 30 feet onto it, and this was just entirely wood. So there had already been several shipwrecks off the coast of St. Augustine because there is a sandbar off the coast and a lot of ships couldn't maneuver it properly. But on New Year's Eve night in 1782, approximately 16 loyalist ships wrecked during a storm while they were trying to enter the harbor as part of an evacuation fleet from Charleston, South Carolina, because this was during the Revolutionary War. So between 1782 and 1817, there's actually historical records for 41 shipwrecks off the shores of St. Augustine. 41 is a lot of shipwrecks. And that's just like the confirmed number. Yeah, I mean, there could have been a lot more. Mm -hmm. 41 is high. That's a lot for one area, for sure. So eventually the population grew to about three or 30,000 people. Um, and then there was also thousands of Native Americans outside of the city's gates who were trying to seek protection from the British inside of the walls. So the governor at the time, Patrick Tonin, um, couldn't feed or protect everyone. So he decided to just shut down everything south of New York and just moved the British out. So he just said, this is not going well, peace. Also, I'm sorry if you can hear the plane flying over right now. Um, so the Spanish moved back in, um, and they moved in um, in 1783 during the Treaty of Paris. And once again, St. Augustine became a military outpost for the Spanish colonies. Um, essentially, their first order of business was to remove the wooden extension on the watchtower and remake it with shell rock and wood. So there's some debate on whether or not the British used the tower as a lighthouse or as like a watchtower, but the Spanish used it solely as a watchtower at this point. Um, and then during this like second Spanish period, a lot of the oldest fam families that still currently reside in St. Augustine had settled back in after returning from Cuba so if you're in the area, these like famous or like the old family names are the Hernandez family, the Sanchez family, and the Ponce family. So I thought that was interesting because that's a long fucking time to hang out in one area. Yeah, and to move back in after, after having to leave. Yep. It's a long time, yeah. So eventually the watchtower became a lighthouse and in 1852 the Spanish had to raise it an additional 10 feet for visibility. And then during the Civil War, however, a few Confederate sympathizers who lived in St. Augustine stole the lens and the mechanisms in order to block the Union from shipping in. But the Union's Navy came in somehow and peacefully claimed St. Augustine. And they arrested a man named Paul Arno, who actually became the mayor of St. Augustine later on, but they held him on one of their prison ships, and after holding him for a while, they were able to find out the location of the clockwork mechanisms and the lenses and put them back up. So by 1871, it was 
very clear that the original lighthouse was going to collapse into the ocean. So Congress gave $100,000 to build a new one during their Florida reconstruction period. Um, So they began work in 1871 and finished in 1874. And when they were done, they had a 165-foot tower. That's a massive tower. Yeah. So the tower was uh, fitted with a nine-foot tall lens that was handmade in Paris. And it was originally fueled by oil before it was moved Um, transitioned over to kerosene and then eventually became electric. Um, So the original lens is currently active and it was fully preserved um, and it's inside of the St. Augustine Lighthouse. You can see it. So the lighthouse was given to the current St. Augustine Lighthouse Museum in 2002 from the U.S. Coast Guard, um, which means that you can tour it to this day. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um... So now I'm going to kind of get into the more like grisly history at the same time as the ghost stories, because there's like the, the spirits that are present, um, it's pretty easy to tie them to people. So it's just going to be easier to kind of like group it. Fair enough. Let's do it. So in 1871, this is sad. I'm warning you now when the new lighthouse was being built the superintendent of the construction was named Hezekiah Pitty, and he moved down from Elizabeth, Maine with his wife and four children. The kids were Mary Adelaide, Eliza, Edward, and Carrie, and several other workers had brought their kids along, um, and like all kids, the Pitty children and their friends used the construction site as like their own personal playground. Hey, I did the same thing as a kid, so I can't blame them. Uh, yeah, same. Both of our dads were, well, my dad was a builder. Your dad is. Yeah. So many, many a construction site. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So these kids got creative and they found a way to kind of create their own roller coaster. So they took an old railway cart that was used to move supplies from the supply ships up to the site um, and they would hop inside of it, ride it down the hill to the water, and then drag it back up and do it again. Um, But they would put a wooden board at the end to, like, stop the cart from flipping into the water. But on July 10th of 1873, Mary Adelaide, who was 15, Eliza, who was 13, and Carrie, who was 4, and a girl who they they don't know her name, All that they know is that um, she was a 10-year-old daughter of one of the African-American workers. So they are actively trying to figure out who she is, but they don't know anything yet. Um, So the four of them decided they wanted to go ride the roller coaster, but they forgot to put the board down. So the girls got into the cart, jetted down the hill, and flipped into the water, which caused all four of them to be trapped under the cart. An African-American worker saw it happen and ran down, but he was too late. When he got there and got the cart flipped back over finally, only Carrie was alive. Oh, that makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. So after the accident, the entire town, including the construction site, shut down. And right after the funeral, the remaining members of the Pity family went back to Maine to bury their daughters. And I don't... 
I don't know if they came back to Florida or if they stayed there. I think that they stayed in Maine. Um, and just to like note, a big reason why the other girl isn't named is because they don't know where she was buried. So they can't just like go find a grave. Yeah, it's hard, no to, clue. hard to trace it back for sure. Um, so yeah, in the last like 148 years, there have been numerous paranormal claims that they believe are linked back to the three girls. Um, there are so many claims that the museum actually holds dark of the moon tours to share the ghost stories. Really? Yep. That's interesting. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. So one super popular story is that one of the relief, uh, lighthouse keepers in the 1950s reported hearing footsteps on the second floor when he went up to see if somebody was upstairs, it was empty. So James Pippin, who was the head keeper from 1953 to 1955, um, he's also the last keeper to live there. He refused to move into the big house because it was, quote, haunted and he would not stay another night in it. So apparently he heard, like, voices, laughter, footprint or footsteps like all all sorts of shit and he was just like absolutely not not doing it he's like i'm not staying there which would be you (laughs) it would absolutely be me so in the 1960s the home was rented to a leather crafter and he told somebody that he woke up one night to a little girl standing by his bed but when he blinked to like get a better look at her she had disappeared so star closed his eyes for like half a second opened them she's gone Yeah, just poof. Nowhere. So, in the 1970s, the home was burned, and they believe it was arson. However, they've never found who did it. They kind of just, I think, assume it was probably some, like, teenagers fucking around, started a fire. Um, But it was burned so badly that only the shell rock basement and some of the frame, like, frames were still standing. That's pretty bad. Yeah. So the county purchased purchased the building to demolish it, um, but 16 women who were part of the Junior Service League of St. Augustine raised $1.2 million over a 15-year period to restore the Keeper's House, the Lighthouse Tower, and the original Lens. And they also added the Lighthouse to the National Register of Historic Places so it can never be torn down. I love everything about that i know that makes me so happy it makes me feel like it's probably like a pretty solid community if they're just like nope you're not getting rid of that try again yeah like we'd like to actually fix it and keep it around rather than get rid of it but also so smart oh yeah because it makes it makes so much money i'm sure from tours yeah i would assume so um so during the renovation the jsl volunteers and the construction workers all reported paranormal claims, um, especially in the basement. So, obviously the place is believed to be super active for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because psychics will regularly call about the house and the lighthouse. Just, like, randomly call? Yes. One called to let them know that the African-American girl who passed away's name was either Ellie or Eleanor. Those are pretty specific. 
And they're pretty close to each other. Yeah. Like, I could see somebody calling a little girl named Eleanor Ellie for short. Yeah, just as, like, a nickname. Yeah. So, the museum is currently trying to do archival research to determine if that is actually this girl's name. They can do that? Yeah. They have, like, a full, like... They have, like, people dedicated to archival research to try and, like, figure out just the history of this place, which is really cool. Yeah, that's that's super cool that they can do that. They have the ability to do that in this place. Yeah. Yeah. So, the um, two pity girls and their friend, who I'm just going to call Ellie, are often reported to play hide-and-seek with both patrons and staff. Um, a staff member was alone in the tower closing up and he heard giggling towards the top. So he assumed that he was like accidentally closing up with somebody still inside. So he went up to the very top, but it was completely empty. So he walked back down the spiral staircase and as he was walking down, he heard the giggling, but this time from down below. So of course, when he got back down there, it was completely empty. Um, during one of the Dark of the Moon tours, there was a tour group. They were standing at the bottom steps of the tower. And um, when they went to walk up, a woman found that her shoelaces were tied to the staircase. Her shoelaces were tied to the staircase? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I think is fucking hilarious. Like, I can just imagine these two little ghost girls, like, casually tying her shoelaces to the stairs and then like backing up and then watching her try to walk up and just like losing it i absolutely would have done that i did do that at that age i don't think i ever did but i didn't have a house with stairs so like oh i just tied it to random things oh yeah i definitely tied people's shoestrings together so they would trip when they tried to walk yeah it's just something you do as a kid yeah you just constantly try to make people fall on their faces yeah um so there was also another tour um, and during this tour, some younger girls went into the basement of the keeper's house and one of those girls had brought an EMF detector. So she asked the pity children and Ellie if they wanted to play hide and seek and there was a spike. So she told them to hide and she began wandering around the room still with the EMF detector when it spiked by the staircase. So she was like, oh my gosh, I found you. Do you want to play again? And it spiked again. So she moved around the room again, and then it spiked next to a children's play table that's in the basement. And then right then, a few more guests moved into the ba- into the basement. Like, they walked in there, and the energy just disappeared. So it was absolutely playing hide-and-seek with her. Yeah, absolutely. That is... I, I love that. I know. I think it's so fucking cute. It, it's adorable. So another woman was exploring the hammock trails on the property and she saw a young girl who was dressed in a Victorian outfit just sitting on a bench reading a book. So she started to ask the girl a question, but another group walked like walked by. So she glanced over at, that, at them. Sorry, I can't talk. And then looked back and the girl was gone. Just gone? Just disappeared. So... A few people have also claimed to see Mary specifically around the property wearing a blue velvet dress. And there have been other sightings late at night of three girls in Victorian era clothing 
like playing in the woods around the lighthouse grounds. It just sounds like normal kids playing, mm -hmm. having a good time. Um, on yet another tour, a woman complimented another woman on how well behaved her daughter was. And the lady replied that she didn't have a daughter to which the first woman said that there was a little girl next to her for most of the tour. For most of the tour, she had this little girl? Yep. And it turns out there were no kids on that tour. None at all? None. So it couldn't have been, like, somebody else's kid just kind of hanging out with her the whole time? There was no kids? There was no kids. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so then there have also been numerous reports of giggling <clears throat> and three sets of child-sized, dirty footprints on the floor when they open in the morning. Three sets? Like three different kids? Yeah. Like Ellie, Mary, and Eliza. Wow. That makes sense, but it's crazy. So, for the next famous ghost, we are going to talk about Maria... I think it's Andro? Um, Maria was most commonly seen on the catwalk... Um, she was not only the first female to serve in the U.S. Coast Guard in 1859, she was also the first Hispanic American woman to command a federal shore station, which was the St. Augustine Lighthouse. She sounds like a badass. Seriously. Like an absolute badass. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, and she was appointed after her husband, um, the caretaker named Joseph, um, passed away. So he was actually painting the exterior of the lighthouse when his, like, scaffolding failed and he fell to his death. That sounds terrible. Yep. So allegedly, after he passed away, she went to the top of the lighthouse and she called out, What shall I do? When she heard her husband's voice reply, Tend to the light. So she received, like, immense support from the community, which is what granted her her station there. Um, but unfortunately, during the Civil War, they decided to turn off the lighthouse to protect St. Augustine from the Union Navy. So she was given zero payer protection. And then in 1862, she left to go live out her life with her daughter in Georgia. That's sad. Yeah. Um, so many people saw Maria both in life and in death standing on the catwalk looking down at where her husband's body once lay. And many people report that they have also heard Joseph screaming. That's super, super sad. Mm -hmm. So for a less sad one, um, Peter Rasmussen was also a lighthouse keeper who is said to still watch the tower. So during his lifetime, he ensured that the keeper's house would be updated with modern luxuries like bathtubs, closets, and bathrooms. But he also had a favorite luxury, and that was cigars. He loved cigars, and people still report smelling faint cigar smoke when they're standing inside of the keeper's house today. Hmm. Um, so... Just for some general things, um, staff members say that when they're closing up at night, they lock the door at the top of the tower and it literally padlocks. Yet when they come in in the morning to open, the door will be open. 
Like, completely open. Mm-hmm. Padlock and everything. Yep. That's insane. Like, unlocked, padlock, unlocked, door open. So, the lighthouse staff has also reported that chairs have been moved or overturned and that various items in the gift shop have been moved or missing only to reappear later. So, they don't ever really, like, go missing. They just disappear for a while and then they reappear. Yeah. Which makes me think that the girls are like, I just want to take this for a little bit. Thanks. I'll bring it back later. Yeah, like, I'm going to take this for a while. I'll bring it back when I'm done. So, tourists have also reported feeling cold spots inside the lightkeeper's house, and many have seen a tall man appear and then disappear right in front of them. This place is active. And Ghost Hunters has actually gone not once, but twice to investigate. The first time that they went is um, season two, episode 19 on Discovery Plus. Um, They head down to Florida to go investigate the lighthouse. And before they go, they do mention that a lighthouse keeper or a groundskeeper, somebody at one point, hung himself on the property. I can't find proof of this, so I'm not sure if it's a legend or if it's like true and they're trying to keep it quiet. I don't know. I don't know what. Yeah, I mean, if you can't find anything, it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. So their tour guide does let them know that when people close the tower for the night, they'll go up uh, to the very top, lock and even padlock that door. And then the next morning, the opener will come in. The door is not only unlocked and open, like we mentioned before, but the alarm system will have not gone off. So they called the alarm company out to check it, investigate it, figure out, like, you know, is there a system failure? What's happening? There's no issues, but nothing set off the motion sensors. So it can open the door. It can unlock, open the door, but it doesn't set off a motion detector at all in this alarm system. Yeah, essentially. So... People have seen a woman in white and also a little girl in a Victorian dress um, standing on the catwalk at the top of the tower, but only during, like, severe storms. That's the only time they see them? Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, we'll get into the theory behind that one towards the end. But um, he does also tell them that their executive director saw a man walk by in the basement And when she went into the room to, like, investigate and, like, see who the fuck was in there, it was empty. And so, you know, think back to what people have claimed. People have said that they've seen a tall man appear and then disappear right in front of them at the lightkeeper's house. So it kind of sounds like there's probably somebody still there. Yeah, definitely. So during the investigation, Jason and Grant hear a girl's voice and they hear steps upstairs So they kept trying to follow it, but obviously nobody was there. And as they're like talking, they kind of get quiet and they're like, it sounds like a conversation. Like they can hear a conversation between a man and a woman and also like a woman and a child. Um, And you can even hear what sounds like a conversation in the background, Um, but you can't tell what it's saying. It's just like a faint conversation off in the distance kind of like muffled in a way almost yeah yeah 
yeah, muffled would be a good word for it. So Grant then sees something move above them and like block out the window. So then they both start looking up and they both see this happen a few times. But then a figure even leans over the railing to look down at them. That's a little bit freaky. Mm-hmm. So then they also hear what sounds like a woman saying, help me. So she's saying, help me, like, does she need something? That's what it makes me think of. Well, she's saying, help me, literally. I would assume that she needs something. Okay. (laughs) My thought is Maria. Okay, yeah. Possibly. Who knows? Who knows? So, Dustin and Brian go in, um, and they keep hearing, like, a woman's voice, but they can't tell what she's saying. Um, they also see movement above them, but of course nobody's up there. Um, and then they also see a hand, like, grab the handrail and start, and then, like, see, like, movement, like, it's walking closer to them. Um, and then they also saw, like, a sudden flash of light that they couldn't explain. And there's no way that it could have been, like, a car passing by or anything like that because they're, like, high up. This is a 160-foot tower. Yeah, there's no way that that's going to be car headlights or anything like that. No. And, like, they don't have... It would have been pretty clear if it was, like, their flashlight or, like, something. But I don't think... I'm pretty sure they don't even have flashlights on them when they're in there. Yeah. Um, so Steve even goes in, even though he's fucking terrified of heights. And when he's in there, he, he does not go up super high. But he hears footsteps and he sees a shadow that was moving around and then it like runs off to the right and Grant's like, yeah, that's exactly what I saw. So So they're seeing similar things. All of them have seen a similar shadow figure, but it's done something different each time, which is what I think is interesting. Yeah. One time it peeped over, one time it walked down the stairs, this time it just like ran off. Yeah. it's, It's interesting. So, when they're, like, looking back on their, like, video evidence and everything, they do end up proving most of the shit that they saw. Really? Okay. So, they get video evidence of something look at, looking down at them from the top of the lighthouse, and it's in the exact location where there is a motion sensor light that would have gone off if it was a person but it doesn't go off. The thing just, like, peeks over and then pulls right back. Without setting off a motion camera again. Yeah. yeah. Well, not a motion camera, a motion light. A motion light, okay. Um. So they also get video evidence of something walking down the stairs, and they get audio of the help me that Jason and Grant heard. Yeah, so they can... They can back up most of the stuff pretty well. Yep. So, because of that, they go back. And they go back. It's season three, episode 20 on Discovery+. Plus, But this time, it is Steve, Jason, Grant, Tango, and Chris. So, they bring Chris specifically because of the woman's voice that they caught on camera saying, help me. They thought that bringing a female investigator might elicit more of, like, a response. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, versus just, you know, a whole bunch of dudes. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, there's one woman here. That'll help. So the guide this time around 
lets them know that females, especially young and attractive ones, have been having the most experiences. And Chris is a young, attractive female. Yeah. So it's, like, fucking perfect. So during the investigation in the ballroom, they catch an EVP of a little girl or, like, a young woman laughing. Um, They also get what sounds like a voice, but you can't really figure out what they're saying. Um, In the tower, Chris says, hello, is anyone down there? And then there's a very faint yes. Like something responded from like down below. That's crazy that they are getting so much activity. Yep. Um, Chris also experiences the shadow and their camera guy, his name is Steve, he feels something cold like pass through his legs on the stairs um, in the tower. Yeah, they're just getting so much. It's crazy. Yep. Um, they also capture like a uh, sound that sounds like childlike. Like, it's kind of like a grunt. It's like, ugh. Like, you, like, got punched or something in the stomach. Yeah, you got, like, like pushed or bumped or something. You're like, ugh. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, and then they also hear a male voice in the basement of the museum that sounds like, we don't need, um, we don't need you. And then there's another female voice later on that sounds, like, same, same area, that sounds like, I don't need your help. It's interesting that it's two different voices, sounding voices saying similar things. Yep. So in the basement of the museum, the thermal camera actually captures like a head and shoulders of somebody, but it's like pretty low to the ground and they try to recreate it and they can't. And then they keep filming that same area and they don't get it again. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, then in the tower of the lighthouse they also have a thermal camera facing up and something just like jumps from the stairs to the landing and they find out when they look back at like the footage captured from their camera crews that this was the exact same moment that grant asks jason if he saw something move upstairs so again they're able to confirm it on multiple different devices yeah of kind of like the, of the same thing happening. Of them seeing something, but also capturing it at the exact same time. Yeah. That's so cool that they have that much to back it up and prove it and be like, this was the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. That's very rare that somebody will catch video evidence of something while also experiencing it in person. Yeah. It, it or sound or anything. It a lot. Yeah. So what do you think? What do you think? Is this... What's going on here? I don't... Wrap my head around all of it and get a good understanding of what I think. Okay. What do you think? So, I definitely think that it is haunted. However, I think that this is a combination of a residual and an intelligent haunting. Yeah, I was leaning that way too. So, I... I think that because this is right next to the ocean and the water can generate a lot more paranormal activity and because people specifically see like Maria and one of the girls during severe storms, I definitely think that there's some residual activity going on, Um, especially just like with the conversations where you can't decipher words out of them, but you can hear people talking. Um, That just feels kind of like residual to me. Also, the like 
man that's just like wandering around in the basement of the house and like the cigar smoke that just seems doesn't seem intelligent however i think those girls are intelligent as hell yeah i would agree with that like they are so active and they're not just like like they're fucking with people which i think is so funny i just like can't get the the shoelaces out of my head yeah, I mean, I absolutely would do that if I was one of those girls. Yeah, they're just having fun, you know, making the time pass by. So, like, I, I definitely think that they're intelligent. I am I am curious, though, just with, like, the male and female voices saying, we don't need you and I don't need your help and the help me. I don't, I don't know what to think about that. I was thinking that maybe because Mary Adelaide would have been like 15, she was 15 when she passed away, she could have had a more mature sounding voice. So the female voice, the help me, I don't need your help, it could be her. However, I'm wondering if the help me is Maria and it's just a residual help me because she essentially said, like, what the fuck should I do? Yeah, exactly. In her previous life, like, you know, she could have been asking for help in in her, her lifetime. Life. Yeah. Um, I'm not super convinced that she's intelligent. I'm kind of leaning towards residual. But the man saying, like, we don't need you, I'm like, maybe it is all intelligent and only the girls actually want to interact. But then also, I feel like people try to interact with the girls more anyway, so... They probably would be more active if everybody's intelligent. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, like you said, they're little kids. They're going to want to interact with people yeah. more than some other people around that time would have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like if I think of a 12-year-old girl ghost, I feel like she'd definitely be chattier than a man who fell from scaffolding. Exactly. That's kind of the way I was leaning. It's definitely, like, there's definitely a lot of residual, I feel like, there. But the girls obviously interact in a more intelligent way with people. Yeah. Yeah. So, you guys will have to let us know what you think. Um, you can send us a message on our Instagram, at Lady in Black Podcast. Um, send us an email to ladyinblackpod at gmail.com. Or you can go on our website and send us a message, which is ladyinblackpodcast.com. Um, you can also send us, like, your personal stories, any suggestions. We would love to read any of your personal spooky stories. Um, and I would love to see any suggestions of places to cover. Um, but we do have something hopefully pretty big coming to you guys next week. Um, we are actually leaving in... Well, in 24 hours, we will be staying the night in allegedly the most haunted room at the Bonanza Inn in Virginia City, Montana. I'm super excited. I'm surprised that you're this excited. I thought you'd be, like, dreading it. I mean, I have to be excited, otherwise I will dread it. That's fair. I'm fucking pumped. I know you are. I can't wait. Um. So, yeah, we are going to cover Virginia City next week, and we will hopefully have some personal stories to share with you i hope so i, I hope, hope so, so. <laughs> i hope so but anyways we will see you next week and this has been lady in black <laughs>